This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. James Hollis. James is a graduate of Zurich's Jung Institute, a licensed Jungian analyst, and the author of 13 books, including Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life and What Matters Most, Living a More Considered Life. With Sounds True, James has written a new book called Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, where he offers an essential guidebook for anyone at a crossroads in life. In Living an Examined Life, he guides the reader through 21 areas for self-inquiry and growth, while inspiring a life of personal authority, integrity, and fulfillment. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, James and I spoke about how our deeper psyche summons us and how we must listen when we get this summons. We also talked about how when we go through dark periods of devastation, what James calls swamplands, there's always a task hidden in the swamp. He also talked about why it's particularly hard to grow up in our contemporary culture, a culture that infantilizes people, and how the two biggest obstacles to progressing on the path of human maturity are our fear and lethargy. And finally, we talked about meaning and why he believes it's important to choose meaning over happiness. Here's my conversation with James Hollis. Jim, to begin our conversation, I'd love to track back to the mid-1970s. And you made a decision at that point to make a career change. And I'd love to know what was happening in your life and what inspired you to become a Jungian analyst at that point. Well, I think several factors, uh, most of them coming from within. And um, I had sort of achieved all my goals. I had a a doctorate before I was 27. I had a um, wonderful family. I had a, a nice academic post. I was teaching classes I enjoyed. And um, everything was uh, exactly the way it's supposed to be. However, as we all know, the psyche often has uh, its own perspective and its own point of view. And I began to feel a sort of of diminishing sense of purpose and satisfaction. And, of course, this was disconcerting. So usually when we find ourselves in a hole, we start doing more of what we (laughs) did to get there in the first place. And and I found uh, essentially a depression beginning uh, between ages 27 and 35. And by 35, I had my first hour of uh, therapy. And I can assure you at the time, I didn't uh, think of it as the beginning of a new journey or as the second half of life or anything like that. I, I thought it was a kind of admission of failure that I hadn't uh, sort of figured it out for myself. But I think often uh, in the face of substantial change, we, we have to have ourselves... Uh, sort of confronted in some way. Um, Jung himself said once about his own midlife process, he he said, I kept discovering new things about myself, and it felt like a defeat. And you'd have to ask yourself, well, why would that be a defeat? And, of course, it's a defeat in the sense in which we think from the standpoint of the ego that we've got things figured out and we're on the right track and we're following the course we're supposed to be taking until the psyche weighs in. And so... It was out of that uh, encounter with the autonomy of the psyche that says you can be doing all the right things, but we're not going to cooperate with you. We're withdrawing uh, our approval and support. And uh, that I began to realize I'm going to have to dialogue with something else here. 
and that's what led me into my first hour of therapy and it led me ultimately to um, a substantial change. I want to ask you a big, broad question about your interest at that time in Jungian psychology. What was it that really captivated you such that you said, you know, I'm going to go through with this intensive education of becoming an analyst, which is quite demanding. So what captivated you about the approach of Jungian psychology? Well, that's a good question. I think I had the interest from the beginning, that is to say, in college and graduate school, because uh, Jung alone seemed to me to appreciate the role of the fine arts, the role of symbolic expression. He valued uh, spirituality in a way that no other psychology did. And I also think that my appeal or my attraction at that point was really academic. I, I used Jung a great deal in my dissertation on Yeats, the Irish poet, and I was dealing with the classic Jungian theme of the tension of opposites as uh, Yeats worked within them in his own life, within Irish society, and you know, within the production of that enormous body of work that he um, created. And so my, my approach was always, I think, intellectual and academic. It, it only began to be real, uh, I think, when I had to, to look at things myself. And I remain forever grateful to my therapist who said at some point, you know, I, I, I simply visited a standard therapist, and, and at some point the therapist said, you know, the kind of questions you're interested in, I think you'd probably be better served working with the union. And I'm very grateful for that person's insights to this day and, and also to his humility that he was willing to say, you know, you're, you're wanting to go someplace that I'm not really prepared to go, and maybe you ought to do that. So with that, I undertook to find a union analyst. And at that point, there was only one between Washington, D.C. and uh, New York City, and uh, that was a, a person outside of Philadelphia. So I started seeing him for two years, and then that led me at age 37 to, uh, to go to Zurich for six years, and uh, five years in residence, and the sixth year was doing a, a dissertation. So um, I, I think in the long run, it was the presence of some deep voice within oneself, what Jung called the voice of the self with a capital S, not to confuse it with the ego, that um, began to speak at that point. And if you'll f forgive this footnote here, I, I think one of the things that we know from the standpoint of Jungian psychology is, you know, what we call psychopathology, you know, those invasions that we don't want and that are unplanned are in many ways evidence of the autonomy of the psyche, which is really the Greek word for soul. It's the autonomy of the human soul. And no matter how much we push it or how much we program it or however much we find ourselves uh, directed towards uh, maybe legitimate goals, uh, it has a will and an intention of its own. And when um, it's not served or respected sufficiently, it will pathologize. And in my case, it, it showed up as, again, a midlife depression. Interestingly, in your new book with Sounds True, Living an Examined Life, you write that the second half of our life, it's not a chronological moment, but a psychological moment. And it sounds like you're describing a psychological moment in your own life where you were initiated into, we could say, the second half of your life. So what is that psychological moment? Sure, and I, I want to make clear what you've just underlined here. That this is less chronological than it is where one is obliged, for whatever reason, to sort of radically question one's assumptions, one's tapes, one's roles, one's commitments. Um, and, and sometimes that happens to people much later. For me, it happened almost literally at midlife, chronologically, but it's not always that case. For some people, it's the loss of a relationship. For others, it's being downsized at work. For others, it's, it's uh, you know, obligatory retirement or changes in the body that one has to, to deal with. Or sometimes people just waken at 3 in the morning, the hour of the wolf, and sort of realize, I don't have a clue as to who I am and what I'm doing here. So it, it varies for all of us. And, and that's why even talking about second half of life, we're really talking about a moment when, for whatever reason, one's obliged to ask a very large question. Who am I? 
apart from my roles? Uh, who am I apart from my history? Who am I apart from my investments of energy and values? All of which may be good, and yet if I'm doing what is right for me, then something within is going to confirm that. And when it runs counter to my ego intention, then there's a knock on my door. There's a summons to uh, show up, to pay attention. And I think people get those kinds of knocks on the door all the time. It's just that we've all learned to override them. We can be frightened by them. We can be lulled by success in some areas. Um, we can sort of lose contact with that deeper voice within each of us that um, in, in the long run will tell us what is right for us. It's interesting that you use this word summons, that we receive a summons. You know, you think of a summons as something you get from a lawyer knocking on your door. It's a dramatic moment. You have to respond in a certain amount of time. It's interesting that you would say that our deeper psyche summons us in some mm -hmm. way. That's a strong word. Well, it is. It is. And, and to break through our comfort, our ease, our behavioral patterns, our habits, um, the, the power of our environmental instructions that we all receive from childhood to the present, it takes something powerful to cut through that and get our attention. Um, I, I often think of Tolstoy's of novella that was published in 1885, The Death of Ivan Illich. And Ivan Illich is a, is a common name, sort of like John Johnson, and it's about a person who lived wholly according to the dictates of his time and place. He went to the right school, he espoused the right attitudes, he married the right person, he lived in the right neighborhood, he practiced the uh, sort of career ladder, and nothing ever interrupted the flow of his life as it was supposed to be until one day he has a pain in his side. And, and the pain doesn't go away, and it turns out to be a terminal illness. And after going through the five stages that uh, Cuba Ross later identified in the uh, 20th century of, of um, you know, denial first, and then anger at the interruption, and then bargaining, and then uh, d despair, he, he reaches acceptance in the final hours of his life. And after he passes away, um, everybody around him is indifferent because it was about John Johnson, not about me. Um, and, of course, what Tolstoy was suggesting is, again, here's a person who got his appointment and paradoxically probably lived a, a more authentic life in those final days and hours than all the rest of those years put together. And, and so it is for all of us. There's so much of our life that's routinized and patterned and, you know, goal-directed. Again, often good goals. And at the same time, the, the psyche has another point of view. And when it wishes to, it'll, it'll break through. And I think summons is both reflecting the intensity of that encounter with one's own soul and, and also that it brings with it an accountability. And if you get a summons from a court or mm -hmm. a lawyer, you have to pay attention. And if you don't pay attention, there are going to be consequences. And so um, maybe I'll stick with the word summons. I think it's appropriate. Now, one other thing I want to circle back around and underscore, because it's really making a big impression on me in this conversation, is your emphasis on how our deep psyche has its own notions of what we need, what our soul needs in our life. And our ego self may have other ideas. And that the, this deep psyche actually, I think you said, has this autonomous nature. So tell me more about that. How can there be this part of me that feels so separate, perhaps, for some of us at certain times in our life than our conscious self going about its business? Well, first of all, I think the moment we're born in the early, earliest days, we're, we're linked to that deep source of, of truth, and it's called our instinct. But being tiny and dependent and vulnerable in the world, we have to begin to um, try to read the world, and I put read in quotes, figure out what's going on here, who are you, who am I, what's the nature of the traffic uh, that I'm experiencing with the world. And we slowly began to make little stories up about that. You know, are you safe? Are you unsafe? Can I approach you? Can I not? 
and and am I of myself of value, or do I have to sort of hide out and avoid uh, it, asking for anything, or do I have to twist myself to be acceptable to you? A thousand stories begin to emerge, and frankly, those adaptations have been necessary from the beginning of human nature, where one has to sort of pay attention to the world around us. We can't just grow up in isolation, um, and, and we we have to make these adaptations, but. Every adaptation has the potential of separating us further from from our own instinctual truth. And this is why Jung said once, um, all neuroses are essentially, you know, where we've gotten separated from our nature. And Nietzsche called us the sick animal. And and society requires and legitimately compromises and and trade-offs. But the greater the trade-off, the potentially the greater the self-estrangement. Mm-hmm. So again, that's that's what the psyche in time begins to respond to and to communicate. And you know, there there are autonomous systems within us. For example, um, you know, the ego does not make up dreams, and yet we know if we pay attention to dreams over time, they uh, operate from some place within us that's knowing, but has a different perspective than ego consciousness. If you think you are inventing your dreams or you can direct them, you just sort of try to summon up a certain sort of dream and the psyche will pay no attention to you. It'll say what it wishes to say. We also have energy systems. When I'm doing what's right for me, the energy's there. It flows. You feel that. It's called in the flow, as a matter of fact. And we can mobilize our energy to take care of life's necessary business, but if we keep mobilizing it in a direction counter to the depth and wisdom and purpose of the soul, then we're going to pay a price. And that price is called burnout, boredom, depression, etc., which often leads then to self-medication that is as a form of trying to uh, sort of anesthetize that internal discord. The feeling function, too, is something that is autonomous. We don't choose feelings. Feelings are autonomous responses to our circumstances as viewed from the deep self. We can pay no attention to our dreams, we can repress them, uh, we can project them onto others, there are a thousand things we can do with feelings, but that's the attitude and practice of, of ego consciousness in its defensiveness. We don't choose feelings. So if over time I continuously override my feeling function, then you'd have to say, now, where is that going to go? And it's going to show up again, in self-anesthetizing behaviors or a kind of recurrent um, um, anger that people often have where they are unwittingly colluding with their own self-estrangement, or or even somaticize. Sometimes the unaddressed goes into our bodies. So the point is, these things never go away. They always go somewhere. You know, Jim, this is a really big idea that we don't choose our feelings. I don't think that's obvious to a lot of people. And if anything, if we're feeling something and we don't like the way we're feeling, we feel bad about feeling that way. Sure, absolutely, sure. I've, I've, I've actually found people who felt um, guilty for, for their feelings or guilty for, say, feeling depressed. I have all these things. All these things are working well for me. Why am I depressed? There's something wrong with me. And, and that's, again, from the standpoint of the ego that can't account for the autonomy of the other. As, as Jung put it once, anyone who really discovers the power of the unconscious knows from that point on one is not the master or mistress of one's own house. And, and that's a certain dethronement of the ego's fantasy of sovereignty, of omniscience and omnipotence. And out of that can come a, a humbling of conversation but a richer conversation. Knowing that you don't choose your feelings, how has that changed over time, how you relate to your feelings, especially when they're difficult, when you're feeling difficult feelings? Sure. Well, I think in the course of any given day, all of us have learned to override our feelings. And sometimes, frankly, the pace of modern life is such that you virtually have to, to take care of the necessary business that life brings to you. But I find my feelings always showing up, and now I sort of wait to look for them. And again, they can show up in the middle of the night, or they'll show up the next day. Or even when I'm needing to struggle with some dilemma in life, some choice, some outer choice, maybe even something a little more mundane like how to start an article or or even a book, 
um, I, I sort of put it in there metaphorically, and uh, the little people or whoever's running around uh, inside um, work on it. And um, they, they don't particularly pay attention to my ego schedule. And I'd like a report by 5 o'clock this afternoon on my desk, if you will, please. And they, they don't function that way. They, but they always get back to me. They, they'll tell me while I'm driving in traffic when my ego's distracted and something will pop up or, uh, again, in a telling dream or I'll wake up with clarity. And I've found through the years, and I mean this quite literally, if I was in my first half of life, I always assumed, well, you just have to work hard and figure it out for yourself and then do it, you know? And there's a truth to that. That's, that's how we mostly function. But today I'd have to say whenever I need to know something important for me, I, I have to put it in there and, and, and wait. In uh, 1939, Jung gave a talk to uh, the Guild for Pastoral Psychology in London, and he, he was saying in, in that talk, we all need to learn to wait as our ancestors learned to wait. He said, if you wait upon the silence, it ultimately speaks. If, if you wait upon the darkness, it illumines. Now, that's a very nice sentiment, but one actually has to go through that to realize the reality of it, and one has to learn to trust that. So the difference between me now and when I was, say, 35, is that I, I, I've learned to recognize there is a, a wisdom within me, that it, call it the wisdom of nature, if you will, that's wiser than my conscious life, and the two of us need to be in conversation together. I mean, we're not, you know, enemies, but this is a humbling process, and I constantly have to be saying to myself, you know, and, and, and what is the soul saying? And when I align my conscious choices with whatever the soul's intention is in any given situation, whether it's work or at home or, or in how we relate to our own, you know, very private journeys, uh, when I can bring those in some kind of harmony, I, I'll feel the sense of well-being and purpose. And, and most of all, you know, you can do all the things you're supposed to do with your life as, as defined by the world around you and still feel empty. And if you're doing what's right for you, uh, you'll have that inner sense of confirmation, an inherent sense of rightness. This is nothing sentimental. It's, it's actually a kind of brutal encounter, I think, with the reality and autonomy of our own natures. And that won't always fit in and make us comfortable with others. Many of the people that we would respect most in history are people who lived troubled lives and suffered greatly and didn't fit in because fitting in is critical for the child and the infant and uh, to some degree to all of us. And yet, if fitting in dominates the reality of uh, intentions of one's own soul, then, you know, that, that's a pretty severe price. Th then you lose yourself, as Ivan Illich did. Mm -hmm. You wrote a previous book, Jim, called Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, mm -hmm. How to mm -hmm. Really Finally Grow Up. And I'm curious mm -hmm. about this idea of growing up and how you define that. What does it mean to grow up to you? Sure. Um... Growing up means, first of all, that I am wholly accountable. And I think all of us would say, look, I'm a responsible person. I pay my taxes. I take care of other children. I, I, I vote. I do all these things. But for most of us, there's some place in each of us that says something like, well, I really wish somebody else would take care of this for me, or I wish they'd explain all this to me so I really knew what was going on, or I, 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 I wish that somebody would just sort of kind of fix this. Uh, this being the human condition. And, and growing up means, essentially, I'm it. I'm accountable. And even though it sounds self-evident when we speak it aloud, emotionally speaking, there's always that part of us that remains infantile, needy, avoidant. And, and growing up means I am truly accountable. And as such, and, and one of the points I make in the book is um, we, we often sort of think, well, when I get to the end of this journey, I'll figure out what it was about. Well, I can give you a clue. On, on the last page of that long-running drama we call our life, um, we die. We're, we're mortal. And I can sort of tell you the ending right now. So the point is, every day we're writing the pages of this story. 
and we're doing it mostly on automatic pilot, mostly. And significant parts of it are derivative from those stories that we've internalized. Some unique to our own biographies, some coming from our culture, from religious and educational uh, influences and, and a thousand other influences. And again, if they are in accord with the terrain of our inner life, we'll feel a sense of purpose and, and fulfillment and, and meaning. And when they don't, then there's that summons we were talking about, the summons to sort of say, in effect, you know, what does the soul want from me here? That's quite a different question. In your own life, Jim, what's been the hardest aspect of growing up for you, if you're willing to share that? Well, I certainly am. I'm, I'm uh, thinking on my feet here, trying to think about, well, what is the hardest part? That's a very good question. Um, I, I, I do think that there is within us all a kind of needy part that is wanting people to take care of us, that is wanting uh, somebody to uh, lift the burden of life for us or, or, again, explain things to us. And I sort of have to sort of, you know, if metaphorically slap myself in the face and say, you know, wake up, you know, you're it. I certainly remember as a child uh, thinking, you know, there's something wrong with all this. I couldn't quite figure out what it was. You know, I saw a big gap between people's values and how they were behaving and so forth and, you know, inequities in nature and in society, etc. Or, or questions that I had that just weren't being answered sufficiently. But I remember thinking quite literally, you know, I'm just a child. I'm, I'm a kid. When I, I grow up, they'll tell me. And I didn't know what puberty was at that point. So when I went from grade school to high school, I thought, well, that's when they tell you because I can tell the high school kids are on the other side of this great divide. And they're, they're, they're on the adult side. Plus, they act cool. They act like they know what's going on. Well, what I had tumbled to unwittingly was the traditional rites of passage where, where youth were pried out of their dependence on the hearth and initiated, albeit into a much simpler society, yes, but into a society in which they were given a sense of what is uh, the bigger picture of our tribe, what is our you know, cosmic heritage here, who are our gods, and who, from whence have we come, and who are the wise ancestors, and here's how you function in our society, here are the rights, duties, privileges, expectations of adulthood. And, of course, almost all of that is gone these days. We, we take kids out and we say, here are computer games and, um, you know, get some computer skills and grow up and get a job. And how you do it's on your own. And so, you know, <laughs> most people are still waiting for someone to come along and explain it to them. And um, one of the aspects of traditional rites of passage was uh, isolation and an ordeal. And in other words, one had to learn to face one's fears, uh, mobilize one's resolve, find courage, uh, find persistence and wherewithal. And, you know, these are the attributes of, uh, of adulthood. And it, nature equips us with these potentials, with these tools, if you will, but they're not necessarily developed by our culture. If anything, we have an infantilizing culture. And, and they're not supported by the wise elders, by and large. And, and so people are out there adrift in big bodies, big roles in life, huge responsibilities and accountabilities, and are, psychologically speaking, still children. And that's a kind of um, you know, disappointing prospect. Why do you say we have an infantilizing culture? Well, when you stop and think about Children and adolescents, what do you think about in terms of their emotional um, disposition? They, they are impulsive. They are impatient. They, they don't like ambiguity. They want clarity, resolution. They tend to fall into black and white thinking. Um, they are too insecure to own their own stuff, so they're always looking to somebody else to blame it on. Um, they, they organize their lives out of evading as much responsibility as they can. And, um, you know, again, they're looking for someone to explain it to them. And, and most of all, you know, it's a culture driven by sensation, meaning, you know, you don't have to reflect upon yourself um, if, if you're distracted all the time. And our electronic world has made distraction more 
possible than any time in history. Uh, Blaise Pascal in the uh, 17th century in France wrote in his Ponces or Thoughts, he said, you know, even, even the king grow miserable if he reflect on himself. And so we invented the jester to distract the court from reflecting upon self. And, and he said at that point, all of our troubles stem from one thing, that we cannot bear to be alone with ourselves in our private chambers. Now that's Pascal, you know, before the internet and the 24-7 buzz that our culture represents. I mean, our culture's answer to the existential anxiety of being human is distraction. You know, if you're distracted, um, we'll keep you entertained or, or, you know, diverted in some way until someday you realize, you know, that was your life. You know, that was your life. Now, Jim, you talked about part of not growing up can include looking to other people to give you answers for your life. And I'm imagining someone who says, look, the reason I listen to Insights at the Edge or buy books by James Hollis, Mm -hmm. wisdom for the second half of life, is I'm hoping he's going to provide me with some answers. That's why I'm reading Jim's book. And yet he's telling me that means I'm not growing up. So there must be some kind of paradox here. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I try to tell people or provide people with perspectives, tools, and most of all, questions. You know, little questions get you a little answer. Big questions like, why am I here in service to what really? What truly matters for me? How do I find my path? You know, I can't answer that for another person. If they're looking for answers, that's exactly that kind of infantilized position I was describing. What I want to do is present people with questions that open them to the richness of their own journey. I've often said to, to people, you know, you have no idea how every day your, the, the magnitude of your life is up for grabs based on your choices. And uh, in an earlier book, The Middle Passage, I, I, I suggested that every morning we all awaken to two gremlin at the foot of our bed. You know, one is called uh, fear. That's the voice that says, you know, it's just too, too much for you. You, you, you can't manage it. Uh, um, try, try to figure a way to wiggle out. And, and the other gremlin at the foot of the bed is called lethargy. That's the voice that says, chill out, tomorrow's another day, turn on the telly, have a bonbon. And those two forces, fear, the magnitude of life's challenge to us, and lethargy, the power of that part of our own unconscious that wants to pull us back into the sleep of childhood, those are our enemies. You know, there are no other enemies in life. Those are the enemies. And guess what? We carry them with us everywhere we go. And no matter what I do today, they're going to show up again tomorrow. And I'm very mindful of that. I do a lot of public speaking, and you know I'm I'm very much an introvert. But um, there's so there's already there a contradiction there. So I I know before every public talk, and and I've been teaching for I think 54 years now, something like that. Um, I always feel lethargic. I, my body hurts. I don't have any energy. I think everything I'm going to say, everybody knows anyhow. So I just call it my, you know, pre-talk neurosis. I mean, I'm just used to it by now. And the moment we start, it all changes. It all changes. And and what is that but the, the, the demons of fear and lethargy trying to grab me and pull me under? And if I allow that, then in some way the meaning and purpose of my life is violated, you know? You can say, but, you know, the purpose of life is to be comfortable. Okay, well, then that's your value. Live it and see if that works for you. See what your psyche has to say about that. Uh, I I don't see comfort as the goal. Uh, I think to make your life more interesting to you, to make it more uh, challenging, a developmental agenda, I think that's that's where it gets interesting and exciting. And, um, you know... (laughs) As I open this first page of the book, I I see a sentence here. Um, We long to make sense of things, figure out who we are, whither bound, and to what end, while the great eons roll on in their mindless ways. So it falls to us, then, to make sense of this journey. And it it does. If I don't try to make sense of my own journey, then somebody's going to be doing it for me. And throughout history, quite frankly... um, 
the world has been full of received authorities who are perfectly willing to tell you who you are, what your values are, and um, you know what your choices ought to be. And those forces are still with us, all right? However much of the uh, sort of institutional authority and traditional authority that the voices once had has diminished greatly. And as Jung pointed out, to be really a modern is not just to be alive and breathing in our time. He said it's to realize that the task of meaning has shifted from the tribe, from the shoulders of the tribe, you know, through village mythology and village institutions, to the shoulders of the individual. And, you know, what a burden and what a rare privilege. So, psychologically speaking, people have never been freer. And yet, however intimidating that invitation may be, um, you know, we contrive these distractions, avoidances, anesthetization processes to, um, you know, try not to show up. And in not showing up, I think we're, we're violating something deep. It uh, has nothing to do with our ego. It has to do with, um, you know, whatever it is we're, you know, being asked to bring to the table of life. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, I, I want to talk quite a bit more about this meaning-making task that each of us as individuals has. But before, I want to get into this idea of, is this lethargy, one of these gremlins you talk about at work in my life, or am I just relaxing? I mean, life is stressful. I, there's a lot of pressure on me. I want to take time to just unwind and be and relax. How do I distinguish? Is this the gremlin of lethargy, or am I just enjoying and relaxing a bit, Jim? Come on. Well, there again is a good question. Uh, again, this is, this is the basic point. It's not what you do. It's what it's in service to inside. In other words, you stop and think about that. I can do any act... And the question, is that a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? And the answer is, well, what is it really in service to inside? Um, then you begin to have a different perspective on things. If the motive is avoidance, then you know that's the gremlin of, of lethargy at work. If you're in some way taking care of yourself and compensating for the you know, pressures of your schedule and legitimate um, uh, commitments out there, that's only a wise and healthy thing to do. That's a form of self-respect. So, you know, you don't always know the immediate answer to the question, what am I doing and in service to what? But I think if you keep asking it, it'll reveal itself. Because, you know, the truth is, <laughs> our lives are full of shabby excuses. We all have them. Um, and, and that's what leads to living in, in what Jean-Paul Sartre called mauvais foi, bad faith. You know, we live in bad faith with our own souls. And, you know, it's not written anywhere that we're to, to work ourselves to death or, or to be wholly on the ramparts somewhere. It's from time to time, one has to, um, you know, there's a wonderful phrase in Walt Whitman, I, I loaf and invite my soul, you know? I mean, I don't think he had any problem with um, inviting the soul. And sometimes you have to do that by doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's circle back around to this meaning-making task. There's a chapter in your new book, Living an Examined Life, called Choose Meaning Over Happiness. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine someone saying, well, I'd like both, please. Sure. Uh, do I really have to choose meaning over happiness? What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, good luck with having both. Maybe you will, because what we call happiness is a momentary, transitory, um, you know, affective or feeling state 
that comes from us when when we've in a, some way lived in right relationship to ourselves. And the problem is, it's transitory. If you could sort of store it and and draw upon it whenever you wanted, that would be terrific. But but one learns to recognize that again, the autonomy of one's psyche in some way is often calling us in a developmental agenda to places that will be conflictual, difficult, and that require us to grow and learn. Not to mention the impact of the outer world upon us that may force us into situations where, you know, we have no idea. I mean, to me, one of the supreme examples of that you found in the marvelous work by Viktor Frankl in his account of his experience at Auschwitz. And he said, you know, I, I found they could take everything away from me and family and profession and health and dignity and everything except one thing. And that was the power to choose the attitudes I found myself in when I couldn't choose my circumstances. And he called this the final freedom. And and he actually developed a therapy out of that horror called logotherapy or really the therapy of meaning. So we don't choose meaning. Meaning is a byproduct of something. And happiness is a byproduct. So if I'm very thirsty, happiness is a glass of water. Too much water is a flood. Um, happiness is very contextual, very, very idiosyncratic, and things that might have made you happy at some stage of your journey are, are, are you know, powerless at this stage of the journey. You know, we're, we're continuously growing and leaving something behind. Now, in the Constitution of the United States, we're told it's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, scholars tell us that what Jefferson meant by happiness was a life of satisfaction as you would construct it. It wasn't happiness in the conventional sense that we have today, which is kind of a theoretically a blissful, carefree attitude. You know, you can only buy that kind of happiness by denying the reality of the world's problems around you. Um, it's it's rather the if if Jefferson was correct, a, a life you construct in which you find a sense of purpose and satisfaction. And it's not that we're against happiness; it's just that you can't bottle it up and store it. It's rather you're living in a way that's meaningful to you. Happiness floods you from time to time. Okay, I'm, I'm with you about happiness being ephemeral and something that comes and goes. How would you help someone who's having trouble with meaninglessness in their life? They don't seem to find any meaning right now. Right now, sure. someone who's listening. Sure, I, I, that happens to many people. That's what happened to me in midlife. You know, I had achieved all of the things I was supposed to achieve, and they provided a sense of happiness until they didn't. And uh, that, that became a kind of uh, desert experience for a while. That, that became a kind of wasteland. When I went to Zurich to um, study, I didn't just suddenly decide, oh, I'm going to change my profession. Um, I went thinking I've got to go deeper into this because it's, it's so far the only meaningful thread I've found through this labyrinth. And so, um, you know, where that was going to lead, I really didn't know. And when I finished over there, I continued to teach in academia for a while because partly that was my day job, but, you know, I still valued it. But then I began to realize, you know, really what, what, I find more meaningful is conversations with adults and not, um, you know, 18-year-olds. There's nothing wrong with being 18. We're all former 18-year-olds. But there was a certain kind of conversation that I knew one had to have gone through some of life's experiencings and the sort of, sort of battering, if you will, of the ego that begins to toughen it up and, and strengthen it to the point it can begin to look at itself in a way. Now, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, sure. Once in another city, I was invited to talk to a group of advanced students at a university on the psychology relationship. And so it was a three-hour seminar. In the first 90 minutes, we talked about the nature of what, the psychological mechanisms of projection, transference, et cetera, et cetera. So that to sort of diagram what attracts people on how they begin to interact with each other. And then we took a, a rest break. We came back and I said, now let's, let's apply these ideas, these understandings of the mechanisms of relationship to your current relationship or, or 
to a, one that recently broke up. And these very bright students, it was just like, you know, the curtain came down. They had nothing to say. Not that they weren't bright. They hadn't reached enough ego strength to bear looking at themselves. They didn't have enough, enough life experience to actually look upon. And, and therefore, again, it reminds me, well, that's why I prefer to talk to people in midlife and beyond. Now, in terms of your larger question about um, people feeling things are meaningless, I think from time to time we all go through that. Um, you know, there are sm small nodules of that and some very large nodules that become uh, crevices in our psyche. Because given to, one thing that's very clear to me is our psyche is a developmental process. We, we develop biologically from the zygote to the elderly being. Um, we are constantly uh, seeking. I think our psyche is always growing uh, and wishing development and enlargement. And so whatever serves for this phase of the journey will be outlived. And so part of what brings people into therapy or, or they experience at times as meaningless is that, you know, the, the roadmap that they've been using that might have worked for a while or maybe didn't work very well at all no longer fits the inner terrain. It, it no longer is applicable. Um, or, or there's that terrible in-between you know, in everybody's life, there are terrible in-betweens where, where something at some level has to die, which is how nature renews. The ego's never thrilled with that. I'll give you a quick example. I had a, a client years ago who came in at age 40 afraid that she might have a terminal illness because she had a very powerful dream in which she's in a hospital and her favorite relative comes to her and says to her very sweetly, it's time to die. And she said, okay, she accepts it in, in the dream. And then that was the dream. And we began to look at that, and she was right on schedule. She was at 40. She had served every uh, tape and, and, and plan that her culture had given her, served it well, and then it was done. You know, the last child was out the door and so forth. And I was saying, you know, essentially, welcome to the second half of your life. Yeah, something's dying. What's dying is your old understanding. What's dying is the old uh, roadmap. And we have to endure a, a difficult in-between that sometimes um, you just have to sit with for some time. And I, I think just because I went to Zurich, it didn't mean like the process was ended. It was just beginning. And um, Jung said once in one of his letters, he said, the dread and resistance we have to really dealing with the, the, the depths of our own soul is, is understandable because it's very intimidating. He said it can even be the voyage to Hades, and that's his phrase. Mm -hmm. And so it is. You're good with the dark language, Jim. I mean, you wrote a book called Swamplands of the Soul, New mm -hmm. Life in Dismal Places. And I thought, that's a title, Swamplands of the Soul. I mean, it's kind of like the journey to Hades, as you're currently sure. describing. And a sentence from that book is that in every swampland, there is a task. And I thought yeah. that was really interesting, how we find the task that's in whatever swampland we might find ourselves at different points in our life. How do we find the task? Well, in, in that book, and it was a discussion of things like depression, addiction, loss, betrayal, you know, all the good things <laughs> that come to us in life, that, that the gods, metaphorically, or the choices of others and, and the consequences of those choices, or choices of, that we've made, and perhaps with unintended consequences, sooner or later, you know, we visit swampland places where we feel uh, overwhelmed, where we feel battered where we feel a loss of purpose and, 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 and so forth. And so what I try to do there is in each of those dismal places to say there's always a task. Now, for example, let me use the one I was giving personally, and that is to have a uh, depression at midlife. What I experienced it as was a kind of loss of energy for the repetition of what I'd been doing. Now, when you're committed to doing those things, um, you know, that certainly is a disconcerting encounter. Um, and, and what I didn't know and couldn't have asked at the time was, all right, now, what might your psyche want you to be examining or, or exploring? And that's a different question. It's not what the ego wants. It's what's your, what your own soul wants. And, 
You know, that doesn't always lend itself to an immediate answer. That's why, again, we have self-medication and so many um, distraction uh, possibilities in our culture. So, you know, in every swampland, the task is to be found. For, for example, take another one, loss. We all experience losses in life, some big, some small. In every loss, there is a, a feeling of having something taken away from us that we value. And yet we're powerless to, you know, recover that which was taken away. And, and so we really have to say, how is it that I can continue to value what was present there and maybe serve that value and, um, you know, not, not be in, in, you know, stuck in this place. In other words, I, I move forward, not in denial of the loss, but by in some way utilizing it and valuing it. So, for example, if with the loss of people in my life, and I've lost several people very near and dear to me, uh, I, I repeatedly ask myself, you know, how is it that I'm serving the values that we had in common? And when I do that, frankly, it gives me a sense of renewal, of purpose, and, um, you know, the energy to overthrow that day's particular lethargic visitation. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, the values you had in common, meaning your kind of common heart ground with that sure, person. Sure, yeah. now, I mean, one of which is my own son who passed away 10 years ago, and I grieve that every single day. And, and yet, you know, he, he and I were very close friends and committed to very similar values, and so part of what I do every day is in service to our relationship. And it doesn't bring him back, but then in another way we could say, and he's also not really gone. There was one other element from living an examined life that I wanted to bring forward, which is towards the beginning of the book, you talk about how Jung observed that the work of an evolved human being consisted of three parts, insight, courage, and endurance. And one of the things I noticed was that courage, you could say, is the opposite of the gremlin of fear that you were describing. Uh-huh. And you could even say endurance, in a sense, is pretty uh-huh. oppositional to lethargy. I've got to keep working on this thing. That's but right. when you talk about insight as part of this, you call it the triune task, insight, courage, and endurance. What do you think are the important insights we need to have to become uh-huh. a quote-unquote evolved human being? Well, in so many ways, um, the insights come either out of what you've learned from your own experience or in the context of therapy where, you know, that dialogue can can bring certain things to the surface. But, you know, it can only take us part of the journey, as um, Jung was suggesting, um, to, to have an insight into something. Namely, my old plan isn't working very well. Well, to, to leave that requires courage. And, and courage is, in a sense, showing up for the task, for the summons that we've talked about. And endurance means sticking it out over time. And, and when we do that with fidelity, then we arrive at a different place. Uh, for example, many times people know, well, I have to end this particular relationship, or I have to stop that and put my energy elsewhere in my life. And, and yet to do so is costly. You know, it might be painful or it might be cause you to feel very lonely and out there by yourself and so forth. And so for those reasons, understandable reasons, people stay stuck. And, and you know, in the end, everybody has stuck places in their personality and in their history. And stuck places always go back to an early story that still has power over us. And all stories are provisional and they're fictive in nature, but when we don't challenge them... Um, you know, they're going to make the choices for us. And that's where that insight is so important. You know, I've often said to people, and it sounds preposterous at some level, but it's like, you're not what happened to you, right? Many times people have had grievous stories of, of abuse or neglect or whatever. And it's natural for a child to identify with that and be caught in the stories that arise out of those kinds of experiences. But you're not what happened to you. You're what is wanting to enter the world through you. you. You are, in some way, the unfolding journey 
that we all have. And, and that insight can be helpful because the power of the old stories and the power of the early sort of sense of self that we have is extraordinary. But the good news is there's always something in us that's wanting to heal and something that's wanting to grow. And, um, you know, the human ego is sort of caught as a badminton bird between those at times. But insight is the first step. And, and then you have to step into what your life is asking of you. You know, if it was easy, it would be easy. <laughs> we wouldn't use a word like courage if it was easy. It's because it's difficult that requires courage. And, and you know, of course, that comes from the French core. Poor, um, to, to have heart, to grab hold of your heart and, and jump into it, and to stick with it and until something else begins to evolve in your life, and it does. You know, do people change? Of course they change. Sometimes they change autonomously, um, just naturally. It's the, the, the developmental process unfolding. Many times it takes a crisis. It takes an enormous amount of resolve and persistence to really change. And if I didn't believe in people changing, I would not be a therapist and I wouldn't be a writer. I don't know what I'd do. But, uh, you know, I, my, my whole life has been based on, the, you know, the power of insight, of education, to help us get some greater sense of personal autonomy, own some measure of mastery over our own life, and and be able to live a journey that makes sense to us, even if even if it's not understood by one's family or, or by one's culture. Mm -hmm. And just to ask another personal question, if it's okay, Jim, at this point in your life, what would you say is the courage and the endurance that's being asked of you at this point? Well, you know, there are all, a thousand answers to that. You know, the obvious ones, I'm now 77, so I'm dealing with the issues of aging and mortality like anyone else. And one of the talks I'm, I'm giving these days on the road is living more fully in the presence of mortality because I think it's precisely that that makes our life meaningful. If we were here forever, you just choose this for a century and then make another choice for another century. And, so, and after a while, you see, nothing would matter. It's because we recognize that this is a very short pause we have between the mysteries of before being here and after being here. And our task is to make that pause as, as luminous as we can. So I ask myself, you know, what is the best way to live this journey insofar as nature and external reality allows me to, to live it at this point? Uh, on another personal level, I've, I've found myself in recent years um, in many ways overcommitted. And so one of the issues that I'm certainly dealing with this at this point is saying no more often and, um, you know, resisting overcommitment and so forth. And I don't always do a good job of that, but I also know that that's going to be increasingly important as the body changes and as this journey progresses. So there's, there's always a challenge um, that we have to, to show up for. And um, we don't often get to choose the challenge. You know, life or the soul chooses it for us. There's another chapter title that really got my attention, and it's called Choose the Path of Enlargement. And I'm curious for someone who's listening to this who is facing some kind of choice they need to make in their life. How do they know which is the direction of enlargement? What you mean by that? Sure. Well, just as we were creatures of adaptation, that, that, that security and survival were the number one priorities, and understandably so, so the power of security often diminishes us. And therefore, we lead, in some way, smaller lives. We, we cling close to shore. We don't sail out on the high seas. Um, we, we all know that life calls us to grow up, to show up, to step into it more fully. And yet to do so is to 
you know, activate the old, old stories that are operating within virtually all of us. Stories like, well, if you do that, you're just going to fall on your face, or people will laugh at you, or people won't understand you, and they'll, they'll withdraw their approval and support from you. I mean, it, those stories are not actually going to happen, although they could, but again, they're the relic or residue of the power of our original stories. And secondly, if they were to happen, is your life important enough to you? Is it, is it a, a meaningful path to live a path of diminishment? Now, if you don't know the answer to the question, again, let's say you're facing a career choice or a relational choice or whatever the venue is that really where there's a, there's a lot of internal conflict. If you ask yourself, does this choice make me larger psychologically, spiritually speaking, or does it make me smaller? Usually we know the answer right away. We, we know. And if you don't know, you keep asking because it will reveal itself. Again, what I call the little people running around inside of each of us will, will work on it and they'll get their committee report back to us. So en enlargement means not in the sense of ego aggrandizement, like, oh, I'm important and I'm powerful and I'm whatever. In fact, those are often compensations for feelings of deep insecurity. It's, it's rather saying, you know, what is, what is the path of growth and development for me? And when I step into that, that's enlargement. That's enlargement. And when I run from it, it's a diminishment of my capacity, of my potential. You also write, Jim, the embrace of ambiguity is part of what opens us to enlargement. Sure, sure. You know, the human ego is, <clears throat> again, a functional complex whose purpose is to sort of manage life as best it can, to deal with outer tasks, but also to, to manage our level of distress or anxiety. And so ambiguity inherently is unpleasant to the human ego. Uh, that's what produces um, one-sided behavior. That's what produces our maladaptions. That's what produces fundamentalisms of all kinds, is, is the effort to rid us of ambiguity. If I have clear marching orders, I don't have to stop and think, who am I in the morning or what my life is about? I just follow directions. And again, that's how most of history has functioned and many lives still function today. And one, one is in some way living someone else's life in doing that. Uh, ambiguity is not easy. Uh, in, as a child, I remember thinking, well, if I read enough, learned enough, met the right people, I'll figure out what life is about. Well, <laughs> dream on. It's, it, it, it gets more ambiguous the more we know, the less we know. And, and, and the more the ambiguity in some way is what, frankly, gets us um, our journey. You know, we, we, we don't grow through certainty. We grow through doubt. Uh, we don't grow through, uh, you know, resting easy in the saddle. We, we, we grow when something needs to be left behind. So ambiguity is, is inherent to anyone who's really being honest about their life and about the nature of the universe. Certainty is certain only to, for today. And tomorrow, we'll outlive it. The, the day we have better questions or better instruments, um, today certainly becomes, you know, tomorrow's imprisonment. To conclude, it sounds like your wish for people in a book like Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, has more to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it has more to do with opening up to the depth, ambiguity, swamplands, deeper questions, someone's own personal sense of meaning than any kind of checklist of some kind. Absolutely. In other words, if I had the arrogance to say, all right, here are 21 truths that, you know, are true for me and they will be for you. Okay. Well, maybe a person might try them in good faith, but again, they have a psyche that has its own opinion and its opinion will show up one way or the other. And if whatever I said was wholly taken in by someone else, there again is the flight from their personal authority. You know, what is true for them? 
find out what is true for you and live it. And if you do, your life has purpose and meaning and, and depth. So what I'm trying to do here is saying, here are the issues. Uh, here are the tasks. Here's some thoughts about that. But you have to apply them in your own way. You know, you, you have to find how this works in your life. And when you do, you gain greater authorship of your life. You have a greater sense of personal agency. And, you're, you know, you're living then in good faith with others. You know, again, we're not here to fit in. We're not here to please the world. We're not here to serve the old stories. And, and we're not here for narcissistic self-indulgence either. I mean, nothing of what I've been saying is, is about endorsing narcissism or self-indulgence. Quite the contrary. It's calling for humility and calling for sacrifice. And what's being sacrificed? The ego's fantasy that it's the boss, that it's in charge. The ego's job is to execute as consciously and faithfully as possible what it needs to do to be in the world more authentically. And in a true dialogue with uh, the depths of one's psyche, the ego is often going to find itself put into a precarious position. But that's where our life takes on its fine edge, and that's where it gets most interesting, and that's where we begin to live what I call the high drama of the, of the soul. I've been speaking with James Hollis. He's the author of a new book, Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey. Jim, I always enjoy talking to you and learn so much. Thank you so much for your depth, and thank you so much for talking about the swamplands and the journey to Hades. I notice whenever I speak to someone and they name those experiences, I feel a kind of inner light in the midst of that darkness being named. So thank you. Thank you, Tammy. It's been a privilege to talk with you, and I appreciate Sounds True publishing this book. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.